Okay, well, I have a Debbie Downer question for us today because of our topic. And the question for you is this, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have experienced regret in your life? (laughs) Right, the answer to that question is another question. Who hasn't, right? Who hasn't wished that we could turn back time and do something differently or say something differently? So I'm sorry to start our morning off together this way, but we are talking about the greatest regret in human history, aren't we? We are talking about what theologians through the ages have termed the fall. The title of our lesson today, it's what John Milton uh, lamented in his Paradise Lost. It's, It's what our own Sean Small here at IBC has termed the great rupture. When what would have been, when what was became what would have been. We all feel it, that sense of regret. I think the two saddest words in the whole universe are if only. If only I hadn't said that or done that. Or if only I had spoken up and done the right thing. I wonder how many times Adam and Eve spoke those two little words to each other. I can only imagine how often they felt that sense of loss and grief over the things that they, that they suffered at, as a result of their sin. And we do too. We feel it. Underneath all of our regrets, all of our losses, all of our sin and shame and disappointments is that deep ache, that longing for what might have been, that longing for what woulda, coulda, shoulda been. Life in the Garden of Eden. It's a life I can only imagine as being utterly delightful. Or if I were Jewish, I would say it was a life of shalom. It's that great Hebrew word that conveys utter peace of mind, of soul, of body. It conveys a sense of wholeness and rightness and harmony and unity with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with all of creation. We long for that. We strive after it. And we feel the frustration of not getting it, don't we? Because we sense that it's lost forever. But it really isn't. Not forever. Because God has already set a plan in motion to renew all of that. And we're going to see just a little glimpse of that this morning. So it's not all going to be a downer, I promise. But until then, how do we keep from repeating the sins of our original parents and perpetuating that cycle of loss and regret? Or put positively, how can we learn to walk God's way? Because God's way is the way of renewal. He is going to renew all things eventually, and he has already started that process. Sin ruptures, God renews. So we're going to talk about walking in the way of renewal. But before we start down that road, let's review a little bit where we've been. As you know, we learned in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created a perfectly delightful world, the pinnacle of which was Adam and Eve, his magnum opus, human beings imprinted with his very image, And God gave them a command, but it was in the form of a blessing. And I can just see his hands resting on their heads as he pronounces these words over them from Genesis 1.28, my paraphrase, flourish, reproduce, spread out and fill the earth and take care of it on my behalf. 
I'm putting you in charge, King Adam, Queen Eve, and I'm giving you everything you need to take care of it well. And the Bible says that it all pleased God very much. And I can't help but think that it pleased Adam and Eve very much too. But then the story takes the downward turn, right? That's where we are this morning. We are right smack dab in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And we're standing beside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is where the great rupture happened. And this is where we get also a little glimmer of renewal that God is already in process of bringing about. So we're going to walk our way through this, and as we do, we're going to discover three things we actually need to know about living life on this planet. And then we're going to discover from the depth of that insight an invitation into walking in God's way. So three things to know about life, followed by an invitation to live life God's way. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 where a new character in our story is introduced. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So there's the first thing we need to know about living in this world, and that is we have an enemy. You have an enemy. You must know your enemy. You must know who he is and how he works so that you can resist him, walk away from him, to walk in the path of renewal. So we know that the enemy in the garden was the serpent, right? That's what it says. But there's nothing in Genesis 3 to indicate that the serpent was the devil himself. He's simply described as one of the wild animals God created, just a little bit craftier than all the other ones. It's why Eve didn't recognize him as an enemy. Because before the fall, animals and people um, were not enemies. They had no fear of each other. It was all delight and shalom, remember? It's only in later writings, like in Revelation, that we, we get the sense of a satanic presence behind that serpent. It's like the Apostle John wrote in Revelation 12. He said, This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So it is here we see that Satan's primary tactic is deception. He's out to deceive the whole world. And he disguises himself. He appeared as a congenial serpent in Genesis 3. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he appears as an angel of light, which means that he will never come to you dressed in a red suit, sporting a jaunty little red horned hat, and carrying a pitchfork. A lot of people I know dismiss the idea of Satan today, just like they dismiss the idea of God. And Satan's good with that. He would love for you to dismiss him, to be completely oblivious to his presence and his tactics. But the truth is there are unseen spiritual realities in our world that are both good and evil. We don't need to fear them. We don't need to fixate on them. But we do need to be aware of them so that we can equip ourselves to deal with them. So the Bible says there are angels who serve the living God and worship him day and night, whom God sends to serve us, his image bearers, to help us. And there are other kinds of angels, we call them fallen angels or demons, who long ago chose to follow Satan in his rebellion against God and whom Satan sends to 
oppress us, God's image bearers. He is opposed to God. Jesus encountered them often, and he referred to them, to Satan, as the evil one. Peter, who should know, describes Satan this way. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Satan was prowling around in that garden looking for the only someones there, Adam and Eve. The way he accomplished his goal of devouring was to tempt them to sin because sin ruptures. Sin ruptures shalom. So let's dig in, take a closer look at his deception of Eve. There we find her in 3-1 standing beside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Wonder why she's standing there. Does she go there often to look at it, to admire its fruit? You know, it's been said that Satan cannot read our minds, but he knows our habits. He knows where we go. He knows what we look at. He, he knows what delights our hearts and our minds. He knew he would find Eve there beside the forbidden tree. And I'm sure you've wondered why, I, as I have, why did God put the tree there in the first place? I mean, right? If God knows what's going to happen before it happens, why did he put the tree there? Seems kind of mean. Seems like he's just asking for trouble. Well, the Bible doesn't answer that question directly. But the Bible does say in James 1.13 that God never tempts anyone to sin. So God was not tempting Adam and Eve when he put the tree there. They were innocent at that point. They could stand there and look at that tree and admire its fruit all day long without any inner temptation to sin. As long as they were exclusively, they exclusively loved and trusted their maker, the one who made them in his image with a will to choose, a mind to think, and emotions to feel. I believe that, the God, that God put the tree there to give Adam and Eve the dignity of choice. God didn't create puppets on a string. He didn't create robots programmed to do his will. He created human beings imprinted with his own image who could and hopefully would freely love him, freely trust him, freely choose him, choose his ways. Humans who could say in their innermost hearts, I want what God wants. If God says don't eat it, I'm not going to eat it because I love him and I trust him entirely to know what is best for me, to do what is good and right for me. I will draw my life and my sense of rightness from my maker. And Adam and Eve had that kind of a heart. It was possible for them because all they knew at that point was God. And the life he had created them to live, that life of abundance and flourishing and peace. But he would give them the dignity of choice by giving them one simple rule. Genesis 2.16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so Satan comes around and he challenges that one simple rule with one simple question. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Did that strike you as a really weird question? 
I mean, of course God didn't say that. Satan knew that. What was he up to? I think he was subtly introducing a toxic seed of doubt into Eve's mind about God's goodness and his provision, and also a seed of doubt about herself. He was trying to diminish God's goodness in her eyes, to diminish the provision that God had made for her by focusing all of her attention on the one thing in all of creation that she admired but couldn't have. She was lacking something. Don't look at all this good stuff God's given you. Focus on that one thing you don't have. That's what you need to be complete. Has that ever happened to you? You ever heard that? Ever fixated on something that you wanted so much that you underappreciated all the good that God had already provided for you? Guilty. Have you ever looked at that thing so longingly that you reached out and took it, even though you couldn't afford it, even though you really didn't feel right about it? That new pair of shoes, that relationship, that website. I was only five years old when I first remembered being tempted in that way. You need to know that I was well provided for. I didn't lack for anything. My parents provided a comfortable home. I had three good meals a day. Um, I had all the toys I needed. But one day in church, in my kindergarten class, I saw a shiny red object sitting on a table that I just had to have. It was a plastic red coin purse with a broken snap. (laughs) I didn't need that. I hadn't dreamed all my five-year-old life of having a a broken coin purse. (laughs) But when I saw it, I wanted it. And it didn't seem like anybody else wanted it. It was just lying there, so I took it. I became a thief at the age of five. (laughs) But we're not just talking about shiny broken coin purses or shiny red apples, if that was the fruit that Eve picked. That's all child's play. Satan was setting her up for something much more dangerous, much bigger. It was the outright lie that would lead to her disobedience. Eve responded to Satan's question with just a little bit of a whine. At least that's the way I hear it. She said, yeah, we can eat. Eh. We just can't eat from that tree. If we eat from that one, we can't even touch that one or we will die. And Satan said in verse 4, you will not surely die. For the Lord God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And so Eve took another look at that tree. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now it's interesting to note that in the ancient Near East, the time when most of the Bible was written, Wisdom was considered the highest human attainment. It put you on a level with the gods. So being wise was all the rage back then. The book of Proverbs in our Bible is all about acquiring wisdom. The ironic thing is, is that it teaches that no one can become wise by disobeying God. 
In fact, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is, is, is reverence. It is a profound respect for who God is and what he has said. And it's, it's a respect for his right to say what's good and what's evil. And then submitting to his ways of rightness and goodness so that we can experience his blessings of flourishing and shalom. But we have an enemy. His name is Satan. His tactic is deception. And deception is by nature, by definition, subtle. Look at that fabulous tree. It will make you like God. That's a good thing, right? Who wouldn't want that? God should want that for you. If he was really good, if he really loved you, he's holding out on you. <coughs> if he were really good, he wouldn't do that. That's the big lie. That God isn't good and you are not enough. You are lacking as God made you. You can't trust God to tell you the truth about who you are and what's best for you. You have to look out for yourself. You have to grab what's best for you. Take it. Eat it. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. Oh, but it did. Sin always leads someplace bad. Sin ruptures shalom and it spreads like a cancer. It was spread to us all these generations later. Romans 5 teaches us that all of us who have been born since Adam and Eve have been born into sin. That means we have a nature that is turned away from God and turned inward into ourselves. It's like sin sort of shrivels us up inside and makes us smaller. It makes us less than God created us to be. And I think that's why sin, I think that's why God hates sin so much. It's not just because it breaks one of his rules, but because it breaks us. We were created for glory. We were created to reflect God's glory in multifaceted ways. But sin ruptures that. Sin diminishes God's glory in us and in the world. So maybe now would be a good time to attempt a definition for sin. And I rather like how Jody defined it in our study. She said that sin is choosing something over God. When we choose to believe a lie and then act on that lie, that is sin. And that's why it's so important, um, why what we believe is so important, because it determines who we are and what we do. That's why Bible study is a core value at Irving Bible Church. That's why it's the core of our women's ministry. That's why it's one of our five rhythms of a missionary disciple here because you cannot discern a lie unless you know the truth. And the only way you can fight a lie is with the truth. But hear me well. The temptation to believe the lie is not the sin. The temptation is not the sin. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. We all doubt sometimes. We all question God's word sometimes. Did God really say, don't steal, little girl? Did God really say, stay faithful in my marriage? Did God really say, I forgive you? Now you forgive those who hurt you. Did God really say, don't worry, trust me to provide all that you need? Did God really say, I love you and I'm doing good 
for you. The temptation to doubt is not the sin. The sin is acting according to the lie we have chosen to believe rather than acting according to the truth that God has revealed. For Adam and Eve, the great rupture happened when they ate the fruit. They ate it because they bought into the lie that God isn't good and they weren't enough. Have you ever heard that lie? I hear it almost every day. Not audibly, of course, and not in those exact words because Satan is crafty. He uses words that resonate with me, and he uses words that resonate with you. And that gets me to the second thing that we need to know in order to walk in the way of renewal. The first one is to know your enemy so you can discern his lies and refute them. The second is to know yourself. Know yourself. And I want to start with the truth about yourself. We need to settle here before we get into some of the false things that we believe. The truth about yourself is this, is that God created you in love to reflect his image in a way that is unique to you. You are deeply loved and you are not a mistake. Now, I have to tell you that it is easier for me to believe that at some times than at other times. When I struggle, the way I I deal with it is I think back to my own children whom God gave me the privilege of helping to create. I think we may have a picture of them up there. Um, Of the five of my children, three of them actually look like me. That's my mother on the left, and then two of my daughters on the right. I also have a son that looks like me, but he missed out on that selfie. (laughs) But look at them. We mirror each other, don't we? We... We look like each other, and I can tell you that my heart, when I look at those faces, I can hardly contain the love that I feel for those who bear my image. And I can hardly express the longing I feel for good for them. I want the best of everything for them. And if I can feel that way about those who bear my image, imagine how God feels that way about us, our loving God. Jesus even said, if you sinful parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to you? We are deeply loved and cared for by the God who created us in his image. We can trust him to tell us the truth about ourselves and how to live in the world that he created. Do you believe that? I do. At least until I take an honest look at my own life and I realize how often I live as if I believe just the opposite. I've been doing some reading lately and learning about how sin has broken each of us in a different way, depending on our family backgrounds, depending on our personality styles, and and other experiences that are unique to each of us. And as a result of that, we develop what many uh, counselors, Christian psychologists, and others have, have defined as our false self or our adapted self. In other words, we have adapted to living life outside the garden, which is harsh and unforgiving. 
There is fear and pain and struggle here. And therefore, we're all engaged in this universal struggle for love, for security, for significance, for control. And we all struggle to meet these kinds of needs in different ways. And this is where the lies come in. And by lies, I mean the inner voices that we pay attention to. Sometimes they, they are the inner voices from our past that play in our minds, and then we rewind them and play them again. Here's one of mine. There's something wrong with you. God didn't make you right. You should try to be like other people. And so then maybe they will love you and value you and want you. Here's another one. You're only as good as people think you are. So try to be perfect. Keep all the rules. Learn to be really nice. Downplay your own desires, your own needs. Be passive. Instead of listening to God, listen to what other people tell you you are and, and who want to tell you what to do. How about this voice? You should be very afraid all the time. Think about everything that could go wrong if you're not very careful and diligent because no one's looking out for you but you and those you love. How about this one by author Karen Wright Marsh? She says, I'm seduced by the inner voice of ambition that says I am what I accomplish. I am what others think of me. I am what I have. As long as my sense of self-identity depends on external things, my mental energy is spent just staying above the line on keeping it together. I'm at the mercy of others who tell me how I'm doing. But this is not a safe place to be. No, it isn't. How about the constant drone of voices on social media and TV and movies? It seems in our culture this, these days that this is the year of the woman. Have you noticed? Heard in the Golden Globes and all kinds of other things. And so many movies that are coming out lately feature very strong and powerful women <coughs> who, who are in the lead roles. And, and I love some of that. You know, my little granddaughter told me recently, she's seven, that she wants to be Wonder Woman for Halloween next year. She already knows. <laughs> However, some of the subtle voices in all of that is, is it saying to be successful in today's world as a woman means being beautiful and sexy and smart and powerful and outspoken. So try harder. Accomplish something. Prove your worth. Be tough. It's like Jody taught us last week. It's just the opposite of what we used to hear, right? Be nice. Be quiet. Stay home. You have nothing to offer. I think we just need to be careful that we don't let the enemy take the good messages that we hear of women's empowerment in these days and use it to feed into the lies that we already believe about ourselves, that you're not enough and God isn't good because he didn't make you like that. Do you hear what I'm saying? Be discerning. Filter what you hear through the grid of who God says you are and how he has uniquely created you because strong, confident women don't all look alike, right? The truth is some of you are hardwired hard by God to be warriors. 
You reflect God's image in that way. You reflect his power and his strength and his protection. It's why you're so passionate all the time about a lot of things, but specifically about standing up for issues of justice and those who are powerless. But perhaps you and others have noticed that your false self seeks to need to be in control all the time, to dominate And yet deep inside you feel vulnerable and you feel afraid of letting down your guard and admitting your own weaknesses and trusting God to take care of you, to protect you and those you love. On the other hand, some of you are hardwired by God to be gentle peacemakers. But perhaps you've noticed that your false self seeks comfort and peace at all costs so that you become indifferent and resigned instead of focused and engaged on the unique purpose that God has given you to reflect his peace to a world that is hurting and afraid. Know yourself. Know your true self and your false self. Now, if you'd like to do some more reading on this, and there's a lot of it, I'm going to give you some uh, resources at the end, so just hang on. But I love what Paul says in Galatians 6, 4, and this is from the message. He says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given and sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. So I've reflected on this a lot, and I've been thinking about you all. I've been wondering how some of these false messages we've talked about have affected the course of your life. What choices have you made as a result of listening to the false voices? And what kinds of regrets do you carry as a result of those choices? We're going to spend a little bit of our time later reflecting on that in just a few minutes. But there is a third thing that we need to know first. To avoid the pitfalls of the enemy and walk in the way of renewal. The first is to know your enemy so you can resist him. The second is to know yourself and the voices that play in your heads. The third thing is to know your God. Know your God. And Genesis 3 teaches us at least three things about knowing God um, as we walk with him in the way of renewal. And the first thing is that God is gracious. Despite their sin, God reached out to Adam and Eve. They were in hiding, but God graciously pursued them. Where are you, Adam? What have you done, Eve? He knew where they were. He knew exactly what they had done. But he was giving them the opportunity to own it, to own their sin, to acknowledge their lostness, their shame, their nakedness, their need for redemption. He wanted them to come to him in their humiliation and in their shame and seek him. Seek repentance, seek restoration. Instead, they blamed each other and made excuses, just like we do. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Still, God did not abandon them. He did not give up on them. God is gracious. The second thing we need to learn about God is that God is just. We know that because he judged the sin that ruptured shalom. He judged and cursed the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to disbelieve and disobey God. He judged Eve's disobedience by increasing her pain in childbirth. 
You know, the very thing that he had blessed her with, be fruitful and multiply, would now be a source of pain for her. Adam was judged because he didn't intervene and speak truth to Satan's lie. He was standing right there, but he let Eve be deceived while he willingly went along with her decision to eat. And so now the ground which represented, which represented fruitful and joyful labor for Adam would now be cursed with thorns and thistles until he would return to the ground from which he was made. This is where they became mortal. The final judgment for both of them was being cast out of the garden, away from shalom and into a place where death and decay would be the rule of the day. Sin ruptured life in the garden. And because God is just, he had to judge the ones who participated in that rupture. And yet, even in judgment, we see the third thing we need to know about God. And that is, God is forever merciful. Even though Eve would experience pain and childbirth, the mercy in the judgment was that the human race would continue through her. Eve became the mother of us all. God promised a future and a hope for the human race that was not just physical but spiritual as well. When God cursed the serpent, he was whispering the gospel to us. Many theologians think of Genesis 3.15 as the first gospel. It says, as God was speaking to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Many theologians have interpreted the offspring of the woman as Jesus, the Messiah, who would suffer a crippling blow from the strike of Satan, but who would ultimately strike Satan's head. When God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve to clothe them, we understand that a sacrifice had to be made. It was the first death in the garden. It was a substitutionary death of the innocent for the sake of the guilty. And you're going to notice as we go through the rest of the biblical story that since the fall, our relationship with God is based on sacrifice. You're going to see it in next week's lesson. You're going to see it in the sacrificial system of Moses. And ultimately, you're going to see it in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus, God graciously pursues us. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Where are you? What have you done? Come to me. Come to me. And his mercy, though, had to come through judgment. On the cross, Jesus judged our sin and he broke its power over us so that we could be free. We who have put our trust in Jesus have our sins not just covered as with the skins of an animal, but completely wiped away, completely gone from us from as far as the east is from the west. That is mercy through judgment. Even God's final act of casting Adam and Eve out of the garden was merciful. He didn't want them to eat the, tr the fruit from the tree of life and then live eternally in an unredeemed state. That would be hell. So he made them mortal because he had a better plan for them and for us. He wants us to live forever with him in an eternally redeemed state where the curse is reversed and shalom is restored. And that's where we're headed as we're going to see in future lessons. But as we move toward that glorious future, God invites us to walk with him. 
Sin ruptures, so know your enemy and know yourself. God renews, so know him. He is gracious and just and forever merciful. Walk with him in the way of renewal. It is a daily, ongoing choice to resist the false voices and to trust God alone to speak the truth and to meet your deepest needs. It's the only way to stop living with the if-onlys and to start dreaming about the what-ifs. What if I truly believed that I'm enough and God is good? I want us to spend a few moments in quiet reflection and prayer before our final discussion time at our tables. There's going to be some soft music playing, and I just want you to sit with God a while and and listen to his voice alone. So will you bow your heads with me, please? Oh, Father, how we thank you that even though our sin is great and our enemy is strong, you are greater still and you are stronger than any enemy we face. Where sin ruptures, you renew and you invite us to walk in newness of life. Father, we acknowledge that in many ways we have believed the lies that we're not enough and you're not good. We invite you now to show each of us where we have allowed those false voices to define and control us and where you're inviting us to walk with you in the way of renewal.